0: that's ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. VTW for prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: Would you like to contribute to the conversation? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. What condition conversation was in. Jay Talking with Bradley J. I listen to morning with the sun up. I'm busy. WBZ News Radio 1030. I tune my radio to AM 1030. The radio's all yours now. I talked to a man whose name a Bradley DJ Improved my mind in a wonderful way I just called in to see what condition conversation was in Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition conversation was in WBZ, you are Talk, and here we go another week. Our guest, right off the bat, is Usma Yudin, and she has a book, When Islam is Not a Religion. How do you do? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Yes, absolutely. Now, I could do a hackneyed version of what I believe you're saying, but can you give me first your official succinct (laughs) mission statement here in this book?
1: Sure. So there's a claim that's being perpetuated that Islam is not a religion. The argument goes something like this. Islam is not a religion. It is a dangerous political ideology. Therefore, American Muslims don't have rights under the First Amendment. And it's a completely absurd claim, of course. There are almost 2 billion Muslims across the globe encompassing tremendous diversity, including 7 million Muslims right here in America. But that doesn't really stop some very prominent people in, in this country for making the claim that American Muslims are not protected by the First Amendment. And so this book looks at that phenomenon, but situates it within the broader sort of religious freedom conversation. And honestly, that there's sort of big culture wars and battles going on in this country right now.
0: So folks, now that you have a general handle on what's up, the number if you'd like to join us in this case is 617-254-1030. The case gets made that Much of Islam is what we are told is religion is really culture. How much of it is really religion?
1: Well, I mean, I can't really give you like a numerical breakdown. I think that in terms, I think that a lot of what the book is coming out when it does look at this question of religion versus politics, right? Because that's a distinction that these people are making when they say that that Islam is not a religion, it's a political ideology. And so there's, for instance, this center that's been set up called the Center for the Study of Political Islam. It's 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 pretty ridiculous. There's people who are completely not trained in Islamic law or Islamic theology or Islamic history, just kind of looking through the various texts and assigning what they think are political verses versus religious verses. But, of course, how they define that and where they think religion starts and politics ends is, of course, a murky question, considering the fact that many religions— have political theology built into them, right? And so religion is, is that space. It's like that's so much a part of, of the human lived experience that politics and culture are necessarily sort of interwoven in it. Um, and so unlike those people who perhaps are the ones behind claims such as uh, Islam, only 16% of Islam is a religion, which is a claim that was made by a man that currently heads up the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, um, it, you know, I'm going to refrain from, from putting a number on it. Of course, my experience of Islam is that it's completely a, a religion uh, in the way that we traditionally think of religion.
0: It's my understanding. Well, first, only he says only 16 percent. That seems pretty arbitrary number.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, I think any sort of attempt to assign a number, assign a percentage would be arbitrary. Right. Um but, yeah, that's a number that's apparently been reached according to quote unquote the statistical methods of uh this the center for the study of political islam um and unfortunately, like I said, it is being trumpeted by people who should know better i mean their their pedigree should say something about you know their knowledge of religious freedom and how that and religion and how that all works um but unfortunately, that is not the case
0: before I go too far, I just want you to know where i'm coming from i I'm a person who I, I like to travel to Pre- predominantly muslim countries jordan and egypt and turkey and i've been to weddings etc so, so i get it you know i i get that people all over the world just want kind of want the same things they want their kids to go to school they want a happy life they want a comfortable life that said it seems that a lot and i am i'm not an expert but a lot of what we're asked to Except as religious is really cultural. Uh, for example, the head covering—you know—I should be allowed to wear my head covering into a bank when that kind of thing is generally frowned upon. And head covering, as I understand it, is simply cultural, not religious. And there are other other examples of this. What say you on that?
1: Well, I mean, I think that there would be – a lot of people would push back on the idea that head covering is simply cultural. And I do have a chapter on uh, the hijab, the head covering, and my own experience of both wearing it and then deciding to stop wearing it. Um, But, you know, I mean, the four major Sunni schools of Islamic thought would all hold that it is an uh, an obligation. I mean, there are exceptions to that obligation, just like there are exceptions to any number of different types of laws. Um, But – uh it is considered obligatory a religiously obligatory act um so i think that you know and if you look across the different muslim cultures whether it be turkey to pakistan to the arab world i think that there's it shows up in different forms right um but ultimately it is incorporated in various ways part of like a large sort of set of modest dress
0: you know better than i uh, go ahead and finish and then i'll continue
1: yeah, and, but I think what's really sort of critical for, for, for the perspective of my, that my book is taking is – and it's very unlike a lot of these other sort of um, literature that's been put out, especially post-911, kind of help people understand Islam better – is the book isn't really about helping people like, know more about Islam. I mean, there's definitely bits of theology and so on that are, that are in there, but ultimately it comes from my experience as a lawyer specializing in U.S. religious freedom law and saying, look, this question of constitutional rights and who gets them and who doesn't is a very separate question from the the beliefs and practices that you understand or approve of um, or think might be cultural versus religious, because honestly you can say that about a number of different religious beliefs, right? But the way that our law is set set up, it really kind of gives a lot of deference. The, The judges and the courts are required to give deference to the individual believer in terms of whether or not they think the action that they're participating in is a religious act, right? And if that's their belief, that what they're doing is religious. And again, it doesn't even have to be required by your religion. It could be something just that you think that you're saying that this is like a part of my religious expression that is protected under the First Amendment. Um, And of course, there's various legal tests then that lay out, okay, well, in this specific scenario, can the government come in and restrict that? Um, But ultimately, the question of whether or not it's protected, which then triggers this next level of inquiry, um, is it, pretty much entirely subjective. I see. So,
0: what I was saying earlier about the head covering not really being part of religion doesn't matter. All you have to do is perceive it to be part of your religion. That's all.
1: Yeah. I mean, I simply, I am wearing this as an act of my religious expression. Um, you know, to I am wearing it because I think that it's required by my religion, or because it, you know, it helps me draw closer to God, et cetera. That's it. Um,
0: that doesn't seem. It seems like abuse would be, e- you know, easy. I, you know, you, well, I feel like I need to wear socks on my hands because, and that's of course ridiculous. But, you know, if your if your rule is going to work, it's got to w- work in all cases. I, I don't, I don't right. really know if I can warm up to that notion of whatever I feel helps me express my religion is part of the religion. For me,
1: well, you know, I address some of these issues in chapter three of the book, where I look at sort of because a lot of people like they talk about religious freedom, but they don't really understand what that is. What is it? Kind of sometimes get. Good... I
0: let me give you yeah. my version of religious freedom. It seemed to me that the American founders said, "You are free to uh, to worship as you like in your place of worship and in your home, without the fear of harassment or deportation or whatever." I don't I don't interpret it to mean you get your religion gets to trump the law of the land. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing that you would disagree.
1: Well, I don't know if I would say trump the law of the land because it kind of makes it seem like it's a recipe for chaos and, and disorder. Um, and in fact, we have a very robust conception of religious freedom that has worked really well. So I think a lot of people think of religious freedom, they think of either religious pluralism or religious tolerance, some kind of like idea of a warm, fuzzy relationship between people of different faiths. Um, I think sometimes people think the way you do, that that it's about just their right to sort of be able to worship in our private spaces, yeah and that religion is somehow supposed to be kind of kept out of the public arena. Um, but in fact, I mean, there's a very sort of, I mean, the U.S. has the most robust religious freedom protections in the world. And it really kind of does see like a very public role for religion. I mean, it understands that religion is so core to people and their idea of meaning in their life, and that it would just be completely antithetical to the very nature of humans to say, well, keep that locked away in private and somehow create this distinction between your public and private selves. Um, But honestly, I mean, even in terms of Christians um, in this country, I think that they definitely have an idea of you know, I earlier mentioned political theology. Christianity definitely has a robust political theology. It's interpreted differently by different types of Christians. But many, as you know, would think that there is a rightful role for some sort of Christian belief or Christian-inspired policy in our public space, right?
0: Right, like, the, um, their, like their belief in birth control, for example. They, they get exemptions from certain things that other folks don't because they have a problem with birth control, And I don't agree with that either. I'm much. A lot of this has to do with my personal feeling about religion. It's kind of. It should be between you and your God, and you don't need to get in my face with it, or my public space, or my my government. Just you know, the you, you, you you live by the law of the land, and the rest of it's between you and your God. That's me, and that's probably not you.
1: Well, I mean, the perspective that the religious believers would have, for instance, is like, The separation goes both ways, right? So it's, well, if I am running a, let's say I was a Catholic, and it's a very clear precept of the Catholic Church's teaching that that is against contraception, right? Uh, Both the use of it and the facilitation of other people using it. And so if I'm running, you know, like one of our clients at my former law firm was a Little Sisters of the Poor, right, which is an order of nuns. So if I'm, uh, you know, a nun simply running my nonprofit, you know, where I serve the homeless and the elderly, or if I'm running a soup kitchen, or if I'm running a Catholic uh, hospital, or any other service that I'm engaged in as a Catholic. But then the government comes in and passes this law and says that now everybody who has any employees, even if it's a nonprofit or for-profit, has to pay for the uh, contraception for their employees. And it's just like, well, that's against my religion. You just came up with this law. And decided that you're going to just force me to do something that's against my religion, right? So, I mean, the idea of separation has to go both ways. It can't just be that the government can do whatever it wants and consistently force people to do things, um, regardless of whether or not it violates their religious beliefs. I
0: don't know. Say, I just differ. I would say, hey, if you want to practice your religion in these United States, you got to go by the law of the land, the law of the land. Let's take a quick yeah break. I mean but
1: I think you're giving I think you're giving a lot of benefit of out to the government sometimes. I mean I think the more sort of we say the government can do whatever it wants without uh, individuals being able to say, well, wait a second, you know like you can't you know you can't interfere in my these very like deeply held religious beliefs and practices, I think that's just giving a little bit too much space to the government and I think if you could take it the logical conclusion where it's just like an overbearing government that doesn't care about our personal ethics. Um, yeah, but and- the government really is us.
0: I mean, that's the thing.
1: Right. Which is the other part of this, right? We because as a I people decided think-
0: this is going to be the way it is. And if you want to be here, that if, if you want to practice your religion to the extent that it interferes with our law, then go. <laughs> I sound, well, I sound so right wing. Uh, take it somewhere else. I have to break. I, I'm, I'm five minutes late for a break. More in a moment on WBZ. We're here to talk. That's why we're here to talk. Now, what do you say? You no, know it's all on Jay Talking with Bradley Jay. Mm. WBZ News Radio 1030.
1: With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: I'll be all around in the dark. Oh, don't leave me tonight. I'll be everywhere. Wherever you can look. Tonight will be a fine night, be dead, judging by the sky. Jay talking, Bradley J. WBZ News Radio 1030. We're with. Excuse me. Usma, Eugene. Her book is When Islam is Not a Religion. And what's going on is people are denying that Islam is really a religion so that they don't have to honor it. And that's at the heart of the book. We were having a discussion that was a little away from the mainstream and the point of the book. And I'll just make one more point regarding that. A better example than the one I gave. Let's say vaccination. Let's say my religion happens to not believe in vaccination for whatever. Like maybe uh, the, uh, I think there is. One, at least one that doesn't believe in vaccinations. And you, the kid wants to go to a public school, but the public school rule is, hey, you have to have a vaccination to go to school here. My take is, look, the state, the, the, the government, the law of the land trumps, and if you don't want to get a vaccination, you don't you don't get to go to school here, and we don't have to honor your religious belief, because it's counter to what we, we're doing here. Th- can you comment on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, so like the vaccination scenario, for instance, brings up a very compelling government interest, right, in interfering. It's saying, well, it's not just your beliefs, but it's also you're creating a risk, a very significant and likely risk that other people will also then be subjected to a particular disease, right? And so, um, you know, and so that's that's an important part of the legal determination. Yes, there's a lot of subjectivity and you get to decide what you think is a religious belief, there are tests. I mean, you know, if the government thinks you're kind of just making it up, they have to, they, they can test for sincerity, right? They can check to see, well, do you really mean it? And that's the part of my book where I actually talk about this. I mean, so when you're saying we're getting away from the book, in fact, we're not. I mean, the book, even though it's kind of framed in terms of Islam, is really kind of a primer on religious freedom. Um, because, again, like I said, it's a huge part of our religious discourse in that very few people understand how the law works. And yet, day after day, we're hearing stuff about religious freedom, right? We hear about the Christian Baker and the same-sex couple. We hear about the travel ban case, um, but specifically against, you know, these people, again, you know, from Muslim-majority states. So people are wondering, well, isn't that kind of discriminating against, you know, Muslim people? And so this stuff is, like, constantly international discourse, and yet very few people have the tools to understand what that's all about. So the book gets into this, Um and one of the things I point out in the sincerity inquiry, I talk about, for instance, the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. I talk about the Church of Marijuana. And I talk about all these sort of like sets of beliefs where people kind of come up with things and the, and the courts are kind of like, wait a second, that's not a religion, or you don't sincerely believe that, right? Um, you say you want this accommodation, but look at all these different times in which you, you're perfectly fine not having it. So are you actually really sincere? So that's the sort of stuff that the courts can get into. Um the second part is that once you figure out, okay, it's a sincere belief, all right, did the government put a limit on it? Was it justified? Did it have a really strong interest? For instance, is it concerned about people's life, lives or their health? Um, and those are compelling interests. They're literally called compelling government interests. And if the government can prove there's no other way to protect that interest than to limit your religious practice, then you lose. The religious believer loses. The government wins. And that's okay. There's a balancing act in the law. It's not like a free-for-all.
0: So does that test Um, also apply to folks doing what we talked about earlier? Say, I am ex-religion, and even though this is not orthodox in my religion, it helps me feel like I'm practicing my religion better. Is there a test for that too?
1: Well, it all comes under the sort of the rubric of this is my religious Belief and you're and the government is placing a restriction on my religious belief, right? So, the, so the law doesn't say that the only beliefs that are protected are the ones that are really central to your religious belief system or really, you know, sort of obligatory versus you know, non non obligatory. Um, it just—it's like you say this is a religious practice, but again, there are all these different inquiries that can legitimately be be made. The government, what the court cannot do is get into the religious doctrine and, and kind of become like a theologian. And you know, the judge can't sort of step out of his lane because judges are just not competent theologians, right? That's not what they're trained to do. But there are all kinds of these safeguards and protections and and balancing tests uh, that come into play. Uh, to make sure that not only does the government provide this really sort of wide, robust protection for religious freedom, uh, which is something that you know our founders thought was really critical. Um, it is the first freedom. It's the first one listed in the First Amendment. It comes before freedom of press, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. Um, but at the same time, it just makes sure that even though people have this freedom, they're not using it in any way to sort of undermine the government.
0: Okay. Where do you fall on the old chestnut, the gay couple who want a cake versus the baker man who does not want to make the cake based on religious belief?
1: Well, so first I would say what exactly is the, the objection, right? Because a lot of the time in the media, the way it's talked about is that the Christian baker has refused service to the gay couple. Um, when in fact, a lot of these cases are just a lot more nuanced, right? So a lot of these cases where whether it be the flower vendor or the photographer or the baker they have, in some cases, very long-standing relationships with their with their gay, um, uh, their LGBT customers, and so you know they are willing to to provide any cake off the you know, any cake that they want, including wedding cakes that are sort of off the shelf. They say not custom made, and the objection is simply on the question of okay, I don't want to make a custom custom wedding cake for your wedding. You can have any other cake, any other off-the-shelf cake. Including wedding cakes, I just don't want to do the custom cake. And a lot of the case, the objection is: a, it forces me to engage in an act of speech that I don't want to, which is a huge, you know, sort of violation of. Um, well, I mean, that's that's the issue of being litigated: is this an act of expression that's protected by the free speech clause? And then the religion component of that is: well, my religion, you know, my, my deeply held religious belief is that marriage is between one man and one woman. And by creating a custom cake, I then become part of the celebration. And I'm celebrating, facilitating, right. that is, I really
0: believed. I know that I'm getting off track here. because I'm getting kind of bogged down in, in case, certain cases. I think you know, the nuances that you bring up about the wedding cake are really interesting. And I hadn't thought about them before, the difference between selling just an item off the shelf and making it making it customizable, which brings up a couple of questions. If the person, this is strictly legal, if the person, well, can the person refuse to make the custom wedding, uh, gay wedding cake, if the person is in the practice of making custom cakes for other folks? I mean, that's what you do. That's the service you provide. Can you say no to a service because of the, the, the people that you're doing it for? And the other thing is, has it really been decided that Doing a custom cake is participation in a, in a gay celebration that they don't want to have anything to do with. Is making a cake really, did the court decide that's participation?
1: So in this scenario, for instance, the, the case I was at the Supreme Court last summer uh, involving Jack Phillips from Masterpiece Cake Shop. Um, he does make custom cakes for other people, right, which is why this couple then came to him asking for a custom cake for their wedding. And so that's the precise facts of the case. Um, but as to the question of whether or not this is permitted, that's actually still an open question, right? Because the Supreme Court what they did in that case is it kind of just sort of sidestepped that particular question and said instead they said they focused on the Colorado Human Rights Commission and the fact that they penalized this baker. But in process of that, some of the statements that the commissioners made basically likened, you know, Phillips, the baker, to Nazis and said all kinds of horrible things about religion. Um, and they're just like, well, hold on a second. One thing that's very clear in our jurisprudence is that you can't, the government actors cannot be hostile toward religion. Um, they need to be neutral and sort of when they're, you know, uh, determining these issues, and so that's what the case was decided on. As opposed to the very more specific questions to whether or not he can legitimately um, refuse service, whether or not this constitutes an act of speech that's protected by the free speech clause. These are still open questions. And a lot of people, the commentators, are just like, "Well, the justices are kind of partly also doing this because they're hoping that we can kind of answer these questions by ourselves, like in in the culture." Sometimes it's not really such a great thing to kind of force courts to figure it out for us, yeah, because it kind of it kind of seems sort of coercive, um, and so the justices are kind of hoping, hoping that that you know the course of our social discourse that we can determine the lines ourselves.
0: I couldn't help, you know, you know, in my mind try to parse this out, and it seems as though you have to decide whether what that cake seller is doing is selling an item or performing a service. I wonder what and we don't have to address this, but what the case would be if a plumber who performs a service didn't want to fix the pipes at a gay wedding. I do, I wonder how the courts would feel about that. So why is it that there's this effort to delegitimize Islam as a religion saying it's, it's other than a religion is, is it a strictly prejudice? Is it any sort of justification for it at all? Do you understand why they, why they would feel that way?
1: Well, one, I mean, as we see this sort of rise in, you know, we, like I said, religious freedom is a huge part of our national discourse. It's we're increasingly kind of seeing the culture wars form around these questions, right, about how religious freedom sort of um, meets sexual freedom, uh, the quest for exemptions, and so on. Ever, ever sort of like, especially under the Trump administration, I think there's a large push to kind of really have a robust. Um, definition of religious freedom, and yet these same people don't want these same protections to extend to Muslims and to Islam, and there's a range of issues. I mean, one of them definitely is sort of this fear that if Muslims have freedom, they're somehow going to take over the United States. I mean, you see that a lot in the literature, um, you know, in in sort of like the the popular and political discourse that happens around this, this idea that You know, Islam is again sort of like a a political ideology, and that if you give Muslims freedom, that they will use it to take over the United States. I mean, it's of course a very far-fetched claim. Um, Muslims are 1.1 percent of the U.S. population. Uh, Many of them actually lean left on a a number of social issues. Um, They don't see their religion as any in in any way sort of like a tool to take over uh, the uh, take over the U.S. but that's ultimately kind of like, especially I mean, that's that's the rhetoric that's used. And so if you kind of look at take it at face value, that's definitely what is being propagated.
0: What role does Sharia law play in this? You have is there a fear that Sharia law will undermine United States law? There are probably a lot of misunderstandings about the standing of Sharia law within the envelope of U.S. law. Can you talk about that?
1: Sure. And I actually have an entire chapter that kind of looks at that precise question. Um, first, looking again at the, the rhetoric behind Sharia, as almost as sort of like, you know, all, this all powerful sort of swamp creature is going to eat us all alive. I mean, it's really kind of fantastical uh, type of language that's used uh, as if it's a life force in and of itself. Um, But Sharia is actually, you know, a a very, Sharia by itself, the actual term just means the path to the water, right? It's sort of like a source of this broad or general divine idea of the social good and how to find your way and find salvation in your life. It's a very sort of um, large, all-encompassing idea. And as I explained in the chapter, the actual jurisprudence, the process by which Muslim jurists then sort of derive rulings from this larger idea of, you know, the, the public good um is a process that is widely understood by the jurists themselves to be a human project and therefore completely fallible and that is why you have endless amounts of dissent and discourse a number of different you know schools of law in Islam, um, where everyone's sort of disagreeing with each other they're like is this what god meant you know is this the best way to figure out this particular principle um and so everything is sort of up for con- continuous contestation by people who are qualified to do that so first sort of Distinguishing the term um, is important. And then the way that that works in the U.S. is very limited, right? So it does not apply at all to criminal law. It doesn't apply to cases in, in which there isn't the voluntary participation, for instance. There's very sort of limited areas where sh- Sharia can be um, can be used. And even then, what's really referring to is religious arbitration. So basically, you have these sort of private arbitrators, uh, just like um Orthodox Jews and a lot of fundamentalist or conservative Christians use um, to basically figure out your personal law issues in accordance with your religious tradition. Alright, so instead of going then, to a
0: court of law, you figure out your personal beef with an arbitrator and the r- appropriate religion.
1: Yeah, and an important piece of that is in order to actually have that decision enforced, you ne- you need to take it to the secular court and the secular court then checks for these different or substantive and procedural issues um, uh, fairness so was it voluntary um what does it comport with u.s public policy does it violate any part of u.s law and only once it kind of goes through these various checks is the decision actually enforced so there's like a second layer not only is the arbitration panel limited but even its decision is checked by the secular civil court um so there's lots of you know Safeguards in place to make sure there's nothing being put out there that in any way uh, violates uh, U.S. law or public policy.
0: From time to time, I think the following thought: I don't really know how to apply it, but it's this: Isn't it coincidental that the the religion that everyone is born into happens to be the best one? And, and I, you know, when, when people are fervently, you know, involved in their religion, I think they had to look around and say, "The reason I." choose this religion is because I happen to be born into it, not because it's the best one. This is That's an aside. I never have had a chance to, to express that. If, if one religion were better than, were clearly better than the other, people would flock to that religion, but they don't. I'm not sure what to make of that, but it, it has to be worth something. Next. Let's see. Check the time. Is it, like Bill Maher says oft, that Islam needs a reformation. Would you agree?
1: Um, I think that he's coming at it for, from you know the process of sort of interpreting and reinterpreting a text. That's a process that's been going on since the very beginning of Islam, right? Um, and so I think that whatever he's talking about, it's not. I mean, I think he's trying to liken it to some sort of you know something like the Protestant Reformation. I think each religion and processes are unique in that way. Um, but I say that, I mean, there is a continuous or a robust discourse. People don't see it, right? And um, You know, somebody asked me in another call, like, oh, among Christians, there's so much dissent. Why isn't there anyone dissenting among Muslims? And I'm like, uh, you know, I'm part of the community. And honestly, I, sometimes I wonder what we actually do agree on. Um, there's dissent on every last thing, right? And so I think he's sort of shortchanging that process of constant interpretation and um, in discourse.
0: All right. So. Do do citizens of the United States who have never met a Muslim have any justification for their fear? I mean, they they haven't met anybody really. And what they see is 9-11 and ISIS and Al-Qaeda, et cetera, et cetera. Daniel Pearl being beheaded. Do you blame them for being afraid? I don't blame
1: them. Um, I don't. And I do. I sort of repeat this point throughout the book, kind of like I understand, like, um, you know, I mean, honestly, like in terms of the question about security and safety, that's a concern that I myself have, whether it be the concerns about the next terrorist attack or the next school shooting. I mean, I have three children. Um, You know, I worry about just sending them to school. You know, I mean, there was another shooting that just happened. uh, What was it today? And El Paso. Um, and it's just like, you know, it's kind of like everyone just sort of bracing themselves as to like, what next? You know, who's it going to be? Is it going to be a, a white nationalist? Is it going to be somebody, you know, professing to act on the basis of Islam? Is it, is it going to be somebody who's mentally ill? Like, what are the different sort of, I mean, it just, it seems like we're constantly living in a time of fear and anxiety and insecurity. Um, and so how can I blame them? <laughs> i carry the same fears. Um, and so I think that's the, the central point. I think there's some sort of dis- people try to create this distinction that somehow American Muslims are walking around feeling completely safe. But in fact, we actually have another, another layer of insecurity. For instance, the skyrocketing rate of hate crimes against Muslims in this country. Uh, women who wear headscarves facing a phenomenon called a hijab grab, where somebody grabs their headscarf and tries to suffocate them with that. And so in addition to all these other big issues that people are dealing with, we're dealing with our own subset of hate crimes They're specifically aimed at us. Um, And these are very well-documented hate crimes, by the way. Do you feel that the the current
0: administration is responsible and the rhetoric used is responsible for an increase in hate crimes?
1: You know, I mean, there's research that has been put out there, kind of looking at the neurology of hate crimes um, and, I mean, the neurology of hate speech, uh, sort of that that effect that it has on people who are sort of already primed to act in uh, a violent form, either because of their own grievances, and then they sort of feel like they have The green light from authority figures in the country and um and so there's actual scientific research kind of looking at the impact of that um and i and i talk about a couple of other theories in my books or one of them called dialectical islamophobia this idea that the government increasingly sort of putting out this rhetoric and policies that are that are discriminatory against muslims kind of almost sort of legitimizes private violence in that way at least in the minds of, of the violent actor Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that they're all interconnected, but again, as you might have figured out from the course of the conversation, I am a huge proponent of freedom, whether it be free speech or religious freedom. And so this isn't really so much about limiting free speech, but it's really about understanding how all these things sort of, uh, work together. Um, and so even as we protect our legal rights, it's also important to understand that we have to push back against the sort of like public discourse that's rife with hatred.
0: Is there anything in Islam that you would change? I, I mean, of course there is. What would you change? Things that don't seem well, to serve any, anymore.
1: You know, again, like I said, Islamic law is something that's in a constant process of um, debate and, and um, dissent. Um, it is a, considered a human project, the derivation of the rulings, and therefore you can continue to reinterpret it within the course of you know, the context of your particular time, right? time and place. And so I think, in that sense, I don't really think about it as changing Islam, but maybe about rethinking a particular interpretation of it, right? Um, and so I think that, you know, uh, my personally, like I, and I actually talk about my own spiritual journey in the book, and how I had a certain conception about what Islamic law was, and actually found upon digging deeper that there is so such a robust defense of and protection of Muslim women's rights, even. And I talk about that experience as a Muslim woman, right? Like, wait a second, if you actually go into some of these really traditional texts, there's so much amazing stuff there that's quite revolutionary if you think about it being rooted in 7th century Ara- in a desert Arabia, right? Um, and so for me, I would just say I would want Muslim societies and Muslim individuals to be able to go more into the traditional texts and see what's there instead of kind of just taking our dictates from um, our personal interests. A lot of the times, you know, men have particular interpretations of the text that are very different from when women scholars have interpretations. And I think just having a more equal playing field and who actually has access to these texts uh, is really critical to make sure we realize the full potential.
0: So, folks, I hope you get an idea of what's in this book, When Islam is Not a Religion. And a great conversation. I really appreciate it. And you seem like a really good lawyer. And in the unlikely event that I need my religious freedoms protected, I'm going to be hiring you.
1: Great. Feel free to reach out. Okay. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. With Lucky Lands Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky?